Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello there. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. This is part six of the second Anglo-Dutch War, so if you haven't listened to the previous ones, go right ahead and listen to them first, otherwise you probably won't know what's going on. If this is your first time listening to When Diplomacy Fails, then thank you very much for joining us, and I hope you enjoy what we have to offer. I would recommend taking a look at our back catalogue as well to see if anything takes your fancy, and I hope you'll stick around and get in contact with me if there's anything else you'd like to know. One thing that everyone should be familiar with now is that When Diplomacy Fails is a member of the Agora Podcast Network. What does that mean? Well, the Agora Podcast Network is actually full of loads of podcasts like When Diplomacy Fails. Podcasts that will further your knowledge in everything from history to literature to current affairs. And which boasts such reputable members as the history of the papacy, the history of England... American Biography, 10 American Presidents, the list goes on and on. Every month, the Agora Podcast Network promotes to the nines a specific podcast so that you get drawn to it if you weren't aware of it already. So for the month of September, Lands of Leviathan, a podcast by good friends Brock and Peter, examining various scenarios and ideas in media and culture and then trying to apply them to our world, or fictional worlds, is our podcast of the month. If that doesn't whet your appetite, I don't know what will. They have episodes in their back catalogue ranging from would the zombie apocalypse or a zombie state work in the modern world? They talk about everything from the decline of democracy to the Panama Papers to the modernization of Mordor. It's all very well done, and it's one of those things that instead of me trying to describe it in words, you should really just check it out yourself. That again is Lands of Leviathan. Check them out on their website, or through iTunes, or the usual places. Now, with all that out of the way, thanks and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Thanks for joining us, guys, for another installment of the Second Anglo-Dutch War. My name is Zach. So, episode six. The last episode looked at the diplomatic schemes of King Charles II as he sought to surround the Dutch in a ring of 
diplomatic alliances that would ensure British security and Dutch isolation. What did we think of it? It was nearly an hour long and there was a lot of names and a lot of things going on, but I feel it was a really good look at the kind of diplomatic practices of the period, and I hope it gave you a good impression of what When Diplomacy Fails is really all about. So, Charles had some successes as we saw, but in this episode we'll examine the other perspective, Johan de Witt, the de facto Dutch Prime Minister at this time, and a man perfectly capable of undertaking diplomatic schemes in his own right. The lay of the land, as de Witt well knew, was far too complex to allow Charles to simply mosey in and ruin the agreements made by the Dutch in years gone by. We also seek to examine the divisions present in Charles's kingdom, and from which section of his realm the idea began to grow for a war with the Dutch. Having said all that, we open our episode in a completely different region, as the eyes of Leopold I, Holy Roman Emperor, are trained on the border of his lands in the south, and just what the Ottoman Turks were about to do next. A diplomat who says yes means maybe. A diplomat who says maybe means no, and a diplomat who says no is no diplomat. Charles Maurice de Talleyrand The implications were unmistakable. The Turks were coming for the first time in two generations. Not since peace had been made in 1606 had the Holy Roman Empire and its Ottoman enemy met on the battlefield. That war had been a significant one, ending with the acceptance that the Habsburgs would no longer pay their Ottoman neighbour regular tribute in exchange for peace. From then onwards, the Ottomans were the same as any other empire. Terrifying, but not so much that they necessitated a regular payment to keep them at bay. At that point, the Holy Roman Emperor, Rudolf II, felt confident enough in his position to maintain his hold over the parts of Europe long since threatened, but so far not overtaken, by the Ottoman tide. Then, the Thirty Years' War happened, and Rudolf's cousin Ferdinand II, as well as his son Ferdinand III, transformed the centre of Europe and what it meant to be Holy Roman Emperor. By the end of the conflict, Germany as it was known had undoubtedly changed into a more decentralised, princely-directed grouping of states, rather than the emperor-centralised polity Ferdinand II had tried to create. But one fact remained constant throughout that period. The Ottomans looked on. Great strides were made in the aftermath of the 1648 Peace of Westphalia in an effort to redefine what the Emperor's relationship with the Empire's princes was, and how much sovereignty those princes could have, as well as the role religion would play, but frequent wars threatened to complicate matters. 
the Dutch fought the British in the early 1650s, and Sweden invaded Poland and then Denmark in the late 1650s. Every European power from the Dutch to the Russians then threw their lot in. Despite the transformative impact it had on the practical power of both the Danes and the Poles, it was down south in perhaps the least powerful of all the combatants that now caused the major consequences for Emperor Leopold I by 1663. The Prince of Transylvania, officially a vassal of the Ottoman Empire, had taken it upon himself to invade Poland in an alliance with Ukrainian Cossacks during that conflict, and the Ottoman Vizier as his master could not stand for such insolence or independence. In early 1660, Transylvania was invaded, its prince ejected and his successor then fled to Vienna. By 1662 it seemed clear that a major Ottoman invasion was due, one which would remind its neighbours of the Turkish presence and reinforce its hold on Hungary, a state which the Habsburgs partitioned with the Turks at that point. Leopold I called on Christian Europe to defend both he and independent Christian states from the Ottoman threat, but he could not have expected much help. He knew well that the last few years had seen a conflict-ridden series of power plays and diplomatic manoeuvres take place, and that if anything, conflict after the Thirty Years' War now contained greater issues at stake than ever before, with more players willing to risk so much and less interest being assigned to other matters of defence, such as in the case of what the silent-for-so-long Ottomans planned to do next. Leopold only had to look at the wars across the British Isles, the Anglo-Dutch War and the Swedish deluges which he had personally intervened in to see the plain truth that the peace of Europe, that the peace of Westphalia, was in fact in pieces. Despite the forlorn hope of aid though, Leopold was informed in late 1662 that help could be assured of from one unlikely source, France. The League of the Rhine was an agreement established under the direction of Cardinal Mazarin, aimed at reducing the power and reach of the Holy Roman Emperor in Central Europe. It was signed by, among others, the Prince-Electors of Mainz, Trier and Cologne, as well as the Elector Palatine of the Rhine and the Duke of Bavaria. The Kings of Sweden and Denmark also committed to respect the League's commercial terms. By crafting the League in August 1658, Mazarin had aimed at marginalising the House of Habsburg and forging a militarised march border between France and its western neighbours. All members of the League promised not to either aid any enemies of the French or allow any French enemies to march through their borders. The League lasted in its full form for almost a decade up to early 1668, but it was by then renewed with its largest and most significant members up to 1688. As an agreement, it served as the predecessor of Napoleon Bonaparte's Confederation of the Rhine, and represented a critical example of French foreign policy seeking to defend its exposed borders by employing its smaller German neighbours in a form of agreed defence. It was then a form of anti-Habsburg policy and a highly significant act of Cardinal Mazarin before the Peace of the Pyrenees a year later ended the Franco-Spanish War. So... What was it doing helping the Holy Roman Emperor five years after it was established? 
Although Westphalia had ceased to end war between Christian Europe, it had led to an appreciation among German, Scandinavian and other European states of their Christian commonality. This commonality would be focused into a missionary-like zeal in the years to come. But for the remainder of the 17th century, the most popular form of religious identification was found in the opposition of Christian Europe towards the Turk. Louis XIV of France, an unlikely ally of Leopold, had been raised on the notion that he was Catholic France's saviour, and that he was responsible for saving Catholicism from any threats, be they internal in the Huguenots or external in the Turk. Increasingly, external threats had come to mean those posed by the Ottoman Empire, especially with the formation of the League of the Rhine. Despite the professed aims of the League to protect French interests and princely independence, many German princes understood their duty to the Empire remained intact. Part of that duty was to defend it from outside attack, particularly an attack motivated by religious ideology. Even with such explanations, it can be hard to understand why 500 Dutch, 1,000 Swedes, 500 Danes, 5,000 French and 6,000 League troops made their way to the Holy Roman Empire's border with Hungary. In January 1663, Leopold I had summoned the Imperial Diet and appealed to its members to send soldiers, whereupon he received 30,000 Bavarian, Brandenburg and Saxon troops, which he combined with his 12,000 Habsburg and 15,000 Croat-Hungarian forces. This multinational force was destined to face the might of 140,000 Ottoman soldiers, split into three armies, and in the process of crossing the border into Habsburg-Hungary in spring 1663. Over the next year, the Imperial Diet would pledge another 50,000 soldiers, and Leopold's forces would fight alongside their European brethren in running battles designed to wear down the invading Ottomans, and shattered the Turks' reputation of military invincibility. Perhaps it was the two generations of European warfare that had taught Europeans so much, or perhaps technological and tactical advancements in that European warfare had something to do with it, but in the major battles that the Allies and the Turks fought, the Turks were routed. In the Battle of St. Gothard on the 1st of August 1664, the Turkish vizier's dream of a takeover of Hungary was determinedly halted for the foreseeable future. Hungarian magnates and some German princes alike now relished the victory and anticipated the invasion of Hungary by Habsburg forces which would hand the entire region back to Vienna. But it never came. As quickly as Leopold had mobilised Western opinion and force towards the Ottoman issue, he then made a somewhat anticlimactic peace with the Ottomans in late 1664. The Ottoman threat and the long war which was required to defeat it necessitated the existence of a Holy Roman Empire with no distractions, no potential enemies and no conflicts on the horizon to deal with. But when Emperor Leopold had looked at the state of Europe in mid-1664, he did not see this state of affairs. Since the illness and lack of heirs from his Habsburg cousin Philip IV had been known in the early 1660s, Louis XIV of France had made plain his intention to claim the Spanish Netherlands in the name of his Spanish wife, Maria Theresa. 
To Leopold, this was the kind of potential distraction which prevented him from giving all his attention to the Ottoman threat. Louis' claims on his cousin's lands had to be dealt with first, before the Turkish problem could be given his full attention. Perhaps once the ambitious young French king's plans had been foiled, then Leopold could redirect his forces back towards the Turks. But until then, he had to revert to old European practice, and prepare to act against his fellow Christians in the name of the European balance of power. Leopold's story was just one among many in the beginning of the 1660s. Not only was the West not ready for a long war with the Turk, but in the last few months it had actually been dividing itself up into armed camps. At the head of one camp seemed to be Louis XIV, King of France, with his clearly stated ambition to invade the Spanish Netherlands at some point in the near future. Allied to him was the Dutch Republic, a marriage of convenience more than anything else, and normally followed in this regard by the Swedish Empire. This triple alliance dated back to the end of the Thirty Years' War, where the three powers had sought to combat the Habsburgs in Spain and Germany, and had largely emerged victorious. The conflict had forced the Emperor, Leopold's father, to sue for peace, and it left the Spanish Habsburgs to fight on alone against their French foe until 1659. Leopold was the potential leader of the other camp, and he surely would seek to place himself against any camp which Louis was present in. Leopold could mobilise weaker allies by comparison against the three juggernauts that Louis could boast, but all three parties in Louis XIV's Triple Alliance had enemies. The French, of course, remained on peaceful if uneasy terms with Spain. The Dutch had recently fought a war against Britain, and looked destined to do so again in the near future. Sweden had enemies in Denmark and Poland, while Russia also planned ahead. Not-so-secret diplomacy engineered by Charles II of Britain had sought to interrupt the two camps, and somehow reconcile Sweden and Denmark together against the Dutch. But Johann de Witt of the Netherlands had more than caught wind of such deals. Despite the fact that both states were, objectively speaking, members of the same bloc, neither Louis XIV nor Johann de Witt had any illusions about their own conflicting foreign policy interests. De Witt knew that the clock was ticking towards the time when France would invade the Spanish Netherlands on the Dutch border and expand French influence and power right on the Dutch doorstep. This was obviously something that he could not allow. Louis appreciated this but accepted that the Dutch, for the moment, were in the business of seeking protection from his own cousin, Charles II. Immediate concerns had to trump eventual ones, so in 1662 De Witt had signed a defensive alliance, with the power he knew that the Dutch would one day have to combat. England remained the more pressing concern, and as De Witt's feelers had informed him, just as The Hague had sought to create a level of diplomatic insurance against a British attack, so too had Charles sent out his own diplomatic missions with the aim of creating his own ring of diplomatic fortifications. If the two rivals could not yet come to blows, they could certainly try and line up their potential friends with a view towards seeing how equal, or unequal, the inevitable slugging match would be. 
Johan de Witt had not stood idly by, as Charles's diplomats in Denmark and Sweden had come close to creating a triple offensive alliance against him. De Witt knew that this alliance was crafted on something of a lie, based around the Treaty of Copenhagen in 1660, that ended a significant recent war between Sweden and Denmark, which had stripped Denmark of numerous lands, and essentially much of its sovereignty in the process. Swedish victory had been supreme in that war, but it had come at a cost. De Witt's Republic was among a number of other powers that intervened against Sweden at various points in that war, when it was believed that the Swedish ambition in the Baltic had gone too far. Only a few years removed from such a war, and the Danish king desired nothing more than to have that treaty thrown out and his old provinces returned, while Sweden, of course, wished to remain what it had gained. To achieve his offensive alliance against the Dutch then, Charles's diplomats had promised the Swedes that the Treaty of Copenhagen would be upheld, while the Danes had been promised the same, though this meant very different things to both powers, as we saw in the last episode. Charles had allowed the Danish king, Frederick III, to believe that by maintaining the Treaty of Copenhagen, all that Britain wanted was to guarantee peace between Sweden and Denmark. In the event of a war between Sweden and Denmark, Charles seemed to commit to aiding the Danes against their eternal Swedish foe. What was more, Britain would angle to get the lost provinces returned to the Danes. With Sweden under control of a regency until the late Charles X of Sweden's son came of age, Frederick III of Denmark believed that it was better to strike now before his rival could possess a strong enough leadership to contest his ambitions. But Frederick was in no position to contest anything himself. Though the last few years had been beneficial for his own plans towards ruling Denmark as an absolute monarch, war had not been kind to Danish fortunes. Since the 1620s Danish power had been on a downward spiral. In a brief war in the 1640s, Sweden had triumphed, and this triumph had repeated itself many times over in a Swedish deluge that had seen the Swedes march across the frozen sound and besiege Copenhagen. Frederick would thus never move against Sweden unless he had London's guaranteed support, and in order to get this he was willing to commit to nearly anything, including an offensive alliance against the Dutch, whom Frederick could claim no real quarrel with. It was, to the absolutist Frederick, a means to an end. Word had gotten out that Sweden was bound in a defensive alliance to Britain, so Frederick wanted to be sure that he acquired the best terms for his kingdom too. Frederick III of Denmark, despite his country's small size and power, soon received loaded messages from Johan de Witt of the Netherlands. De Witt found out about Freddy's dealings with London in early 1665, and though he was somewhat taken aback, he did not order his diplomats to threaten or coerce the Danes. Instead, he simply emphasised the diplomatic facts. Since 1649, the Danes and the Dutch had possessed a defensive alliance. This was the agreement which had enabled the Dutch to come to the aid of Denmark during the Siege of Copenhagen in mid-1659. The agreement had not lapsed, which meant that it was still in effect, and thus Freddy was breaking international custom by signing up to an offensive alliance against the Dutch. In early February 1665, as the terms of Charles's offensive alliance was being concluded, 
The Dutch agents were in the background, extracting the details of the arrangement from their contacts in Stockholm, Copenhagen and London, just when it seemed as though Charles's plan was about to be signed. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. ...signed and committed to. But DeWitt had been aware of Charles' plans since mid-1662 when the African Troubles had flared up. And in December of 1664, he sent a memo to Frederick III in which he requested that the King of Denmark make an open and round declaration to Charles II and his diplomats, whereby Britain could be informed that Denmark was already obliged to aid the Dutch, and thus an offensive alliance levelled against the Dutch could not be signed. When Frederick seemed slow in the uptake, De Witt tried a different tactic. It was relatively well known that France and the Dutch were bound in a defensive alliance in 1662, but De Witt happened to know that Frederick possessed his own interests with regard to France. In mid-February 1665, Johann De Witt messaged Louis XIV and informed him of his intention to implement the Articles of their Defensive Alliance of April 1662, since it appeared to him as though Britain and its slowly building and strange coalition were preparing to attack him. Indeed, the Second Anglo-Dutch War, as we know it, would break out only a month later, in March 1665. Louis agreed with De Witt's observations, and without De Witt even asking him to. As per diplomatic protocol, Louis XIV began to scramble his diplomats abroad to test the waters in anticipation for what would happen if a Second Anglo-Dutch War did break out. This was the general strategy utilised by a power, which expected to soon go to war. They sent out their feelers to foreign capitals to check in on their old alliances or secret agreements to see if they would still be respected in the event of war. One such place that this checkup occurred was Copenhagen. The French ambassador to Denmark informed Frederick that Paris intended to stick rigidly 
to the terms of its defensive alliance with the Dutch and urged Denmark, in the name of the king, to stick to its alliance with the Dutch as well. The pressure was more considerable than it may first appear. Frederick considered France a critical ally in his schemes to regain his lost provinces, primarily because of the Franco-Swedish relationship that dated back to 1635, and Freddy's hopes that he could use this relationship to leverage some advantage for himself if he was on the good side of Louis XIV. But it was also for another significant fact, because Denmark and France had come to sign some agreements between each other as well. The League of the Rhine that I mentioned at the beginning of this episode included a commercial agreement with Denmark, but it also included a provision for a Franco-Danish offensive alliance, signed in August 1663, which stipulated that France would militarily aid Denmark against any enemies that Denmark declared war against, except for Sweden, whom Louis would only provide subsidies against. The presence of a Franco-Danish alliance, amongst every other agreement Frederick seemed content to sign, complicated matters for the Danish king, but to De Witt it made things far easier. De Witt knew that Frederick above all wanted aid against Sweden. His deal with the Dutch had been geared towards that end in 1649, as had the duplicitous deals with Charles, as had the offensive alliance with France. Frederick of Denmark believed that France was best disposed to concoct some kind of arrangement whereby Denmark could wage a beneficial war against Sweden, or perhaps regain its old provinces through diplomacy, because of the Franco-Swedish relationship and the Swedish dependence on France for regular injections of badly needed cash. De Witt knew that the last thing Frederick wanted to do was offend France, and certainly not be on the opposite side of Louis XIV if war came. Denmark's previous agreements with Charles had been meant to add more layers to Frederick's anti-Swedish policy, but if the original French deals were coming to the fore now, he would have no choice but to revert back to them and leave the new negotiations with Charles behind, lest he come out against France and jeopardise any chance for Louis to aid him in his quest for his lost provinces. De Witt knew well that before Frederick had even treated with Charles, he had signed with Louis. To De Witt, a Franco-Danish-Dutch agreement made sense, since all had made separate dual alliances in the past. He did agree with Frederick's assessment of Sweden as going through something of a lull during its present regency, but to De Witt, Sweden was not the major issue. Britain was, and he would do all in his power to take apart any alliances Britain might construct against his country. Louis' diplomacy was less complicated, but then French security was not as easily endangered as the Dutch. De Witt accepted that the next war against Britain would be a critical one for naval power and imperial interests abroad. The Dutch had learned a lot from their last war with London, and were hopefully ready to respond to their previous defeat with convincing force. To do this, there could be no distractions. Perhaps larger powers would not have gone to such effort and exerted such diplomatic pressure against a country as small and weak as Denmark, but De Witt acknowledged three facts when he engineered a diplomatic backlash against Frederick III's ambitions. First, he acknowledged that a future war with Britain could have no alternative theatres. Britain was too important and powerful a foe to fight half-heartedly, 
and even a state as small as Denmark could tip the balance against the Dutch. Second, small as Denmark was, it still inhabited an important position in the Baltic, and on the Sound as well. The trade was critical to the Dutch, and any increase in hostility between the two countries would seriously complicate Dutch naval security and commerce. Third, by pulling Frederick back from agreeing wholeheartedly to an anti-Dutch offensive alliance, De Witt was sending a clear message to Charles. The British king could coerce and manipulate and lie to his potential partners, but he had come too late to the game. A web of diplomacy existed underneath Europe's surface, the strands of which went back to before the death of Charles's father. This system had to be traversed with care and expertise, and Charles would never get away with blundering through old agreements or keeping secrets from other powers. Perhaps De Witt didn't even care so much about Denmark as much as he did about sending a message to Charles. Britain had sought to craft its own anti-Dutch league, but it had been outmatched and outmaneuvered by a better connected and better equipped Dutch response. Contrary to Charles's intentions, it was now Britain that was isolated, not the Netherlands. At the end of February 1665, when the French ambassador to Denmark asked Frederick to announce his intentions with respect to the Franco-Danish alliance and how Copenhagen would proceed, Frederick retreated to his country estate to ponder his entire foreign policy. He had not declared against Charles, and in many ways seemed to be stalling for time, but he had certainly refrained from signing into an anti-Dutch league as well. The pressure had been too much, and just as it seemed so close to completion, Charles II's league fell apart. Back home in Britain, Charles was facing problems of his own regarding the possibility of war with the Dutch. Historians over the centuries have debated the nature of the Second Anglo-Dutch War, and which factions within Charles's court pushed for it against the advice of others. The more loaded question of how both Charles and his country were persuaded to go to war, when it was clear that the Dutch were better positioned diplomatically, and that such a war would be immensely costly at a time when money was scarce at home, is one that we need to take some time examining now. The answer to the question is more complicated than it may first appear. For many years the explanation of merchants wanting the war with the Dutch to take their markets was the largely accepted answer behind the Second War. But closer analysis of the source material and a deeper examination of Britain's far-flung interests in general have yielded something of incredible interest, not just to historians trying to find out why the war happened, but also to historians of the era that wanted to know how the restoration regime worked. For a long portion of this series of episodes, we've alluded vaguely to the courtiers of Charles II and the individuals that held influence or possessed a level of friendship with the British king. Most of these men were obviously royalists, but some had stories that dated back many decades to when Charles was a young teenager in exile and relied on his close friends. Some others stayed on in Britain as the Commonwealth reigned, hiding their true loyalties until Charles returned, whereupon they trumpeted these loyalties with a vengeance. The need to prove one's loyalties to the returning king meant that royalists who had endured the Commonwealth were often the most outwardly zealous in favour of rash action at home. The elimination of all potential enemies was one thing, 
but such royalist zealots advocated the purging from the kingdom of those remotely associated with the old regimes. When Parliament resumed under Charles's mandate in late 1660, another problem became clear to the returning king. Not only were these newly enfranchised nobles, royalists and gentlemen attempting to push out all others from the Parliament, thereby ensuring that only the most enthusiastic of royalists held sway there, but the religious undertones of their actions were something to behold as well. Growing up on the continent, Charles had long since given up any notions of attempting to impose one belief system or another on his subjects. This historical fact is attested to by some of the earliest historians of the period. Whatever one could criticise Charles for regarding his lavish spending, womanising or rash decision making, Charles seemed to possess a genuine wish for levels of religious toleration within the British Isles. Such wishes came as much from his pragmatism, I feel, as they did from the circumstances of his exile and familial ties. In the case of familial ties, Charles was after all the son of Henrietta Maria, the sister of Louis XIII and a staunch Catholic. Charles's younger sister Henrietta, whom he affectionately nicknamed Minette, was soon married off to her cousin, Philippe, the younger brother of Louis XIV, but she too had previously converted to Catholicism and would remain as passionate as her mother about her faith. The ever-evolving tale of Charles II's brother, James II, and his flirtations and eventual confirmed conversion to Catholicism complete this tale of the family. Charles could hardly outlaw Catholicism within his realm, when the vast majority of his own family professed it. On the pragmatic side of things, Charles was faced with a kingdom that had a Catholic majority in Ireland, a Presbyterian majority in Scotland, an Anglican majority in England, and thousands of Puritans, nonconformists, and independents in between. It would have been insane to force any of these groupings into one persuasion or the other, and this had motivated him to issue the Declaration of Breda, before his returning home, wherein Charles had argued for a freedom of conscience where religion was concerned, so long as such religious persuasions did not endanger the crown. This was all well and dandy, but Charles deeply underestimated the zealous passions of the royalists within Parliament, who had monopolised their power within that institution and called for the harshest punishments for participants in the old regime as well as for sweeping guarantees from the king to ensure the precedence of the Anglican creed over all denominations. Jenny Oglow in her book, A Gambling Man, Charles II and the Restoration, portrays Charles as fundamentally unable to traverse the deep-seated divisions within his kingdom, and that despite his best efforts, between the years of 1660 to 65, he continuously failed to persuade peer or parliament to acquiesce to his wishes for religious tolerance. Charles was hesitant to throw away the decades-old ruling on a uniform prayer book and the incendiary implications therein, but he did appreciate that a different religious persuasion did not have to mean differing levels of loyalty to the monarchy. By the time of his return, all itched for Charles to cut a dashing, refreshing, liberating figure after years of sombre dictatorship and intolerance. The problem was, though, the old regimes had so ostracised and restricted the likes of the Anglicans that these same Anglicans 
clamoured for revenge and a chance to ensure their position more so than they actually clamoured for tolerance. The experiences of intolerance taught royalist Anglicans, who now found themselves in powerful positions, that vengeance was not just desirable, but necessary, to remove elements from the kingdom that possessed questionable loyalties towards the king. The five years before war with the Dutch were awash with a series of rulings, decrees and acts by Parliament that a beleaguered and frustrated Charles continued to agree to in the hope that by accepting such laws on religion, Parliament would be more lenient in other areas. But Charles soon realised he had far less control than he wished. Parliament, though fully intending to respect the authority of the king, contained vengeful factions with scores to settle. It also contains factions previously dispossessed, who would now do all they could to regain and hold on to their old estates and titles. Some of the most enthusiastic and volatile of these men claimed that only Anglicanism ensured the loyalty of one's subjects. Puritans were republicanisms, Catholics were traitorous Irish or French, Presbyterians were the wily and cunning Scots, nonconformists or independents were the slippery Dutch or men of a questionable moral fibre. To combat these, a number of acts were implemented. The 1662 Act of Uniformity made the use of the Anglican Book of Common Prayer compulsory. The 1664 Conventicle Act prohibited religious assemblies of more than five people, except from the permission or direction of the Church of England. And the 1665 Five Mile Act prohibited expelled non-conforming clergymen from coming within five miles of a parish from which they had been banished. The important fact was, as Charles realised too late, Parliament didn't need to persuade him of the necessity in passing such restrictive religious laws. They only had to persuade themselves. Though the resurgence of Anglicanism to the forefront of British politics by sheer force and weight of oppression was the most notable domestic act of vengeance. Many of these peers, nobles and gentlemen, held influence and positions in other regions of government too. Not content to merely force the issue on religious policy at home, these Anglican royalists saw disloyalty and the potential for danger everywhere, especially abroad. When Dutch shipping clearly outmatched its closest competitors by so great a margin, and when repeated actions in West Africa damaged Britain's expanding merchant company's reach. This party of zealous Anglican royalists committed their passions once reserved for their home to events abroad, with incredible consequences. With the help of distinguished peers convinced of its necessity, Anglican royalists with a self-imposed mission identified in early 1664 what the problem with Britain's position was across the world. It was not damaged because of the restrictive nature of Britain's commercial or religious policies, oh no. It was instead damaged because foreign powers insisted on attacking Britain as it minded its own business and sought to better itself. Who was the prime culprit responsible for the most rapacious and opportunistic of such attacks? The Dutch, the same power that Britain had extinguished in the past, but clearly the job was in need of repeating. This was the crux of the argument put forward by Stephen Pincus in his article Popery, Trade and the Universal Monarchy, 
the ideological context of the outbreak of the Second Anglo-Dutch War, which was published in 1992. While it may not seem all that surprising to note the presence of a group of zealous individuals clinging more enthusiastically than ever to their creed after years of suppression, what may surprise you on the other hand was just how far this conspiracy, if you want to call it that, went in British society, especially when it came to war with the Dutch. For starters, the Anglican Royalists poured themselves into the newly created Royal Company of Adventurers trading into Africa. An aggressive, ambitious new venture floated on royal loans and adopting as its strategy the forced ejection of the Dutch from the lucrative slave trades on the West African coast. The lobby that this company created in favour of war with the Dutch was remarkable. Because they identified the Dutch as their prime rival in the region, war against their presence was believed to be beneficial and necessary. Yet, Pincus explains the other significant aspects of the Anglican Royalists' motivations behind calling for war with the Dutch, and these were more ideological than commercial. A committee of seven men met twice a week to organise the business of the African company. More often than not, they met with James, the Duke of York, in attendance, and often met in his private apartments as well. I won't burden you with more names, but each of the seven men on the committee had a record of loyal service to the royalist cause. But things get strange when one notes a common stream of Catholic feeling running through a handful of the committee members. How is this reconciled with being a purportedly Anglican royalist institution? The short answer is, terminology of the era is very confusing. The long answer is that religious persuasions lent themselves to different beliefs about how the economy should be run. What this meant was that an Anglican could have different views to a non-conformist or Presbyterian over what Britain's commercial interests were and how they could be improved. As Stephen Pincus asserted, this didn't mean that none of the different denominations would ever trade with one another, but it did mean that at the end of the day each group held different opinions over how the economic interests of the country could best be met. This explains how semi-Catholics could be present in the African company, while still professing an Anglican royalist ethos. In this case, Anglican was a distinction of economic ideology rather than necessarily religious ideology, though of course religion did factor into it for those that were not closet Catholics. The African Company was thus the most important lobby for the Anglo-Dutch War, and we'll encounter it again in the next episode. If it helps, you could think of it as a body which encompassed individuals from all walks of life, who possessed different religious persuasions. What each member of the seven-man committee had in common with his fellow man was the zealous royalist passion for the monarchy, and a minority-held belief in how to achieve, for the realm, a better economic situation. A Hollandophobic economic ideology, as Pincus noted, was the most inevitable complement to a political and religious outlook which blamed England's woes on religious pluralism and political republicanism. The clear hypocrisy involved in the African company's ideological makeup, calling for religious uniformity when many secretly held Catholic sympathies, for instance, was mirrored in their strained attitude towards the Dutch in West Africa. While it was accepted that the Dutch held all the cards, 
and that any power in their right mind would seek to hold onto these cards in the event of war, the African Company's committee cried foul over what it regarded as Dutch offences against the Crown, when all the Dutch were really doing was defending itself against the aggressive African Company's policies. Yet, this had as much to do with the company's ambitions as it did with the other fundamental fact of its members. Aside from being solidly royalist, they were also uncompromisingly anti-Dutch. In the next episode, we'll examine why that was the case, as well as trace the incredible anti-Dutch rhetoric which had come to invade the many layers of the British state. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.